Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN, and boy, oh boy, this is always a thrill for me to speak with this guy, Dr. Mark Beckoff. Oh, I could read all his honors. He's written and authored dozens, I think, of books. Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado Boulder, a fellow of the Animal Behavior Society, a past Guggenheim Fellow, and the list goes on of the credits and honors. Uh, Dr. Beckoff, it is always good to talk to you. This time, Dogs Demystified, an A to Z guide of all things canine, and a <laughs> foreword, by the way, written by Dr. Jane Goodall, who I know is a friend of yours. Yes, thank you. Um, you got it all right so far. <laughs> <laughs> so far. Give me five minutes and I'll screw it up. So I'm no, just no. going to launch into it. Uh, okay. Because you write uh, on various platforms, particularly Psychology Today, about, and it seems like you write a column every 20 minutes. I don't know how you pump them out. But, but you, <laughs> you, you wrote about dog parks. And in Chicago, by the way, they're called dog-friendly areas because those are places that are within larger parks. And those are the places where dogs can go. And actually, I had a significant hand in beginning these, convincing Chicago years ago, that we need places for dogs, too. And at that point in time, people were complaining with dogs that, oh, my gosh, I have nowhere to let my dog off leash. And if I do, the police would actually ticket at times dog owners, which was more about revenue than anything else. But also, I'd argue, to some extent about public safety, dogs needed a place. Other cities, I'm going back a couple of decades, other cities Mm -hmm. in the country, around where you are actually, uh, in Colorado and west of you in California, were certainly beginning to do this with great success. We launched one in Chicago as sort of a starter, then we set all these rules up, and now we have, I don't know how many, but we have quite a few of these dog-friendly areas. Having said that, the guy that was the big proponent, I don't take my dog to a dog park or a dog-friendly area uh, for a variety of different reasons. In part, she's a small dog who's 15 years old and doesn't care. Mm-hmm. She doesn't sure. care. She doesn't care about other dogs. But... I would argue that my dog isn't alone there, that lots of dogs don't care, but yet we take them there. The dogs actually aren't having a good time. Or for the dogs that are having a good time, we don't always pay attention. Bottom line, dog parks are not for every dog, and they're not for every person either. And I know you have some strong feelings about this. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. You know, I always say very simply... Um, that when these articles are written, I mean, the New York Times, for instance, has published two over the last few years, one very recently, that basically says all dog parks are bad, which is ridiculous. Um, and, you know, my <clears throat> my take-home message for dog park or dog-friendly area users and, you know, people who favor them is, you know, if you and your dog like to go, then go. If you like to go, but your dog doesn't like to go, go alone. <laughs> if, if you, you know, your dog wants to go and you don't want to go, get someone to take your dog. And if neither of you want to go, don't go. But I really mean that seriously. These, these um, articles that say that all dog parks are bad and dogs don't like them, blah, 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 are just absurd. I mean, I have spent 
countless hours at, I'll, I'll call them dog parks, but I love the dog-friendly areas as well. Um, and, you know, studies, you know, there's only been one study that shows that real aggression, serious aggression is pretty rare. But one thing that I noticed as an ethologist, you know, someone who really watches dogs, is nobody's ever looked at the rates of, say, aggression and friendly, what we call pro-social behaviors like greeting and playing. So I agree with you, Steve, that dog parks are not made for every dog, but I, I think they're great places to go for dogs to get socialized. You know, for dogs to learn how to resolve conflicts on their own, given that, yeah, there can be a fight, but there was a study done in Newfoundland where no aggression was observed. And the, the, the other part of that study was, or that location was, somebody did a subsequent study to the first one by Melissa Howes, and they actually got different results, not with aggression, but different results about play and space use. And the other message is that a dog park, you know, it's you know, like going to a restaurant can vary from one hour to the next, depending on who's there. Absolutely true. And and you are the man to ask about this because you truly, truly are an expert on play, not only in dogs, but other canines, as well as other mammal species and animals in general. You are an expert on that topic. How important is it that dogs have an opportunity to play with other dogs. Now, having said that, some dogs want nothing to do with other dogs, I realize. But overall, how important is that? Play is really important, and it's important for youngsters to learn social rules of engagement, to um, you know, exercise their bodies, their muscles, tendons, joints, and their brains, by the way. Uh, they learn cognitive skills, you know, how how hard they can fight someone, how hard they can slam into someone, how high, say, of a, a rock or something they can jump off of. And they learn what we call um, training for the unexpected, meaning that because play is such a hodgepodge of behaviors, they learn how to deal with unexpected circumstances. So play is crucial, and it's also crucial for Adults, you know, in, in like among the wild relatives of dogs, like coyotes and wolves and foxes, adults play less, but they will play. But among dogs who are cared for, <laughs> adults who like to play should play, and they should be allowed to play because they can always learn something. Or, of course, the bottom line is play is enjoyable. You know, I mean, people say, well, you know, that's not a really biological reason and it it turns out it is the journal current biology about my goodness eight years ago had a special issue on the biology and evolution of fun and having fun is important and if you want uh, a behavior to be retained in the repertoire of an animal you need to make it pleasurable or enjoyable well, there's nothing more yeah. motivating than that, I don't believe. The name of the book is called Dogs Demystified, an A to Z guide to all things, all things, everything ever, canine. Dr. <laughs> Mark Beckoff is here. The forward, by the way, was written by Dr. Jane Goodall. And we will be back with Dr. Beckoff on WGN. 
Dr. Mark Beckoff is the author of Dogs Demystified, an A to Z guide to all things canine. Dr. Beckoff, you have studied dogs around the world, dogs that are outdoors, like many dogs are, just living on their own, so-called feral dogs, dogs that are considered pets, a whole other group of pets that never go indoors, really, but yet... In places in the world, they're still considered pets. They're cared for. They probably even have names. And then there are the dogs that share our homes and our beds. A significant number of people, Dr. Beckoff, no longer, especially if those people are under the age of, say, 25, they don't have any clue what a doghouse even is. So (laughs) certainly our perceptions have changed over the years. In doing so, as the bond has intensified, have we romanticized dogs to the point that it really isn't so good for us or for dogs? Yeah, that's a really great question, Steve. Um, I, I haven't thought of romanticizing other than, you know, there's a, there's a whole cohort of dogs who have marginally good dog lives. Um, like home dogs who stay in all day, you know, they're told when to, when they can eat, when they can pee, poop, go out, when they can play, with whom they can play, how they can play. So it's a little too um, over-the-top control freaky for me. But I think that, you know, as people become fluent in dog, if you will, and allow uh, their dog to express their dogness and, and understand that there are dog appropriate behaviors that we do not like. And in fact, some of, some people call them disgusting. Then, you know, we're in a really different situation. And I think things are changing a bit, maybe, maybe more, more slowly than I would like, but, but I think things are changing. And, you know, really one of the reasons I wrote, among the reasons I wrote my book was to make people fluent in dog and appreciate what it is like to be a dog. And so when a dog does something that we don't like, but it's dog appropriate, I usually just say, you don't have to like everything that they do because they surely don't like everything that we do. And the other other thing I'll follow up on the way you started this session was that there are tons of free-ranging dogs, some of whom have, you know, get um, food and care by humans. The one thing that seems to be missing for a lot of free-ranging dogs is veterinary care. And then you have the feral dogs who really are on their own. And I had a student who studied feral dogs in um, Arizona some years ago. These are dogs who really are on their own. I mean, maybe occasionally they'll go to... um, a food dump, but so do wild wolves and wild coyotes. Um, but these are dogs who really don't get any care. So we need to be careful about generalizing who dogs are and what they want and need from um, the small percentage of dogs who live in homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you recently wrote a book about what would happen to dogs if indeed we all disappeared. Would the dogs disappear as well? And your bottom line answer was? No. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line answer, you know, it was a book called 
a dog's world, imagining the lives of dogs in a world without humans. No, a lot of dogs would do well. And people said, oh, you know, you're just being facetious. No, 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 not at all. I mean, dogs today all descended from a common wolf ancestor. They have dog wolf genes, if you will, wolf DNA. They've got wolf engrams in their brains. And so the answer is, yeah, some and maybe many dogs would make it on their own without us. And it's not dissing humans. It's it's decentering humans from being, you know, the only show in town. But, you know, it would depend where the dogs live. Um, and we're talking about dogs who are born, you know, not the first-generation dogs. So the first-generation dogs, when we leave, uh, many will have had contact or some contact with humans. But down the line, these animals will do fine. They'll have to They'll have to join up with wild animals. Um, we already know that dogs can mate and produce fertile offspring with wolves, coyotes, and jackals. Um, they may form associate, friendly associations with those animals or other carnivores. They may just coexist with them, um, or they may compete with them. And, you know, people say, well, only large dogs will make it. no. In, in really warm habitats, you know, maybe smaller dogs would be favored. You know, it's like putting a husky in Phoenix in August. I mean, it's being outside for a husky in, or a large dog in Phoenix, Arizona, um, in August might be really troubling. Um, but the dogs will make it, and there's no general rule of thumb who will make it. It's just going to depend on who else is around um, and, say, climate. But are we understanding dogs as well as we could? As smart as we are, I would maintain that right now, today, dogs understand us better than we understand them. Yeah, I think dogs really read us well. You know, um, you know. It's, once again, you know, from the long association with humans, we don't really know how much is genetic, you know, hardwired. But dogs do read us very well. Um what I, what I meant before when I said things seem to be getting better is <clears throat> people are becoming more dog literate. So barking has many, many different functions. It's not always a sad dog or a happy dog. It's not always, you know, growling is not always a threat. And I think the other bottom line or among the bottom line messages from my book, Dogs Demystified, is looking at context. And that's where... People who become fluent in dogs could know that, yeah, you know, a growl could mean that a dog is in a bad mood, you know, had a bad dream, had a bad day, or it could just be a playful growl. And when I go to dog parks, one of the things I love about it is I start talking to people, and I've gotten people to become what I call citizen scientists. They'll take videos and send them to me. They'll they'll do um, score sheets, and they'll show them to me. And by getting them involved in their dog, it's like watching a kid grow up. By getting um, them involved in what the, their dog is doing at a dog park, they actually, some, some have told me they actually feel closer to their dog. And they're understanding their dog as the individual they are. You know, that's another thing. And you know that well, Steve. You know, even, you know, and I know you know cats. You know, they're not all the same. So what I love is having people learn who their dog is, even if they're siblings and litter mates. 
And they'll go, my goodness, they're really different. And I go, uh-huh, <laughs> they are very different. Um, well, I'm so curious. Yeah. I'm curious, Dr. Beckoff. There's some research that has been done about cat play. I want to ask mm-hmm. you if that correlates with dogs, this particular study. And also, mm-hmm. I want to talk about your friend, Dr. Jane Goodall. I will tell you what she once told me about dogs, which may or may not surprise mm-hmm. you. And we will do that when we come back. Dr. Mark Beckoff, the author of this book, Dogs Demystified, an A to Z guide to all things canine. And by the way, the foreword written by his friend, Dr. Jane Goodall. We'll be back with Dr. Mark Beckoff next. Exciting news. Next week on the show, we'll talk about a reason to go to your boss and say November 8th, I don't have to go to work because it's International Human Animal Bond Day. You think your boss will buy it? Well, I do. And what is that day all about? What does that mean? What exactly is this human-animal bond anyway? It's more than how we think about our dogs and cats. It's certainly that, but also other pets. But it's way beyond that as well. We'll talk with the president of the Human-Animal Bond Association, Dr. Patrick Flynn. We'll also talk about, uh, because this is exciting news, there's a product coming out right now. It's being shipped as I speak to veterinary clinics called Labrella. That's for dogs with arthritis. It's a monoclonal antibody, which is kind of all the buzzword in human medicine and in veterinary medicine. In fact, there's a monoclonal antibody now out to treat parvovirus. We'll talk about that next week. So it's not only arthritis, it's parvovirus. We'll explain all of that next week on Steve Dale's Pet World. Dr. Mark Beckoff is the author of 412 books. How many books have you written? Have you lost count? <laughs> um, 30 or 40, because I've done... He doesn't some, even know. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I've done some major, major encyclopedias. So I think it's fair to say that I have produced or given birth to, I think, 41 books. Wow, that's that's amazing. From the guy who's done, like, I think I'm still in single digits. That's that's incredible. Now, this book, Dogs Demystified, an A to Z guide to all things canine, forward written by your friend, Dr. Jane Goodall. And in one of the conversations, you talk to her all the time, probably, although she travels the world so much still, I don't know how often you're able to catch up with her, but I've I've talked to her twice where we did lengthy or lengthier interviews, and I asked her once what is the animal that she is most impressed with, and I thought she'd then go on. After all, she's a primatologist. She studied chimpanzees very famously, and she would talk about chimpanzees. And she said dogs. Mm-hmm. Dogs, she said, I think her exact words, they're the most amazing creature on earth. Are you surprised by that response that she gave? And she said the animal that most impacted my life was the dog I grew up with. And what do you think personally? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I have a good deal of contact with Jane. Um, she was recently in Denver and we spent a lot of time together. And, um, yeah, dogs are her favorite animal. She knows dogs very well, actually. Um, you know, she's a great ethologist, a field ethologist. So I'm not surprised at all. And um, 
Yeah, and, and when I asked her to write the forward, she was glad to do so. And she, you know, you probably know this, but, you know, she started the forward off saying that people think that chimpanzees are my favorite animal. Right. Dogs are my favorite animal. So, yes, I mean, yes, she, she really does. Um, she has a... She has a big heart for all animals. That's but, the best way to put it. But, what What um, is it about dogs that, you know, one study was done, this uh, a culture in the Middle East that doesn't particularly care for dogs uh, culturally. By the way, there's nothing in the Quran, to my knowledge, about dogs uh, that is absolutely negative or hateful in any way whatsoever. That's, that's, a, that's a misnomer. But in that, even just looking at images of dogs, it turns out most individuals who did so smiled. Why is it that when walking down the street in America, you see a dog and studies have been done on this very topic, you can't help but smile? We were talking about dog parks earlier. I know people who don't have dogs that go to dog parks just to watch, to get their dog fixed. It's like watching a sports event in in a way. They're having a good time just watching. What is it about dogs? Um, I think dogs... You know, so there's been studies done a lot by sociologists where they they label dogs in many different ways. They're social lubricants. They're social catalysts. Um, you know, they're great for breaking the ice. Um, you know, with somebody. I know. I know. I think there have been some studies of people looking at um, people. You know, who are looking for a date or a dinner partner or something. And I don't really mean that, you know, in any funny negative way, you know, dogs to be the catalyst. Oh, what a pretty dog. And then you discover that you've got something in common with the person um, as well. You know, I'm not sure what it is, but I think once again, it could be tied in and I'm not sure about the genetics of it. And I'm, I'm frankly not sure anybody is that, you know, dogs have been part of the human um, human, um, how can I say the human habitats for a really, really long time. Um, but on the other hand, and, and you might know this better than I do, Steve, because of what you do, I've learned over the years there's a significant number of people who don't find dogs so attractive. Um, they think they're dirty. They think that, you know, they're not friendly. But I still think and, and maybe a study you're talking about, I still think the vast majority of people compared to those who are um, either afraid of or don't find dogs appealing, the vast majority of people do. And I don't know that anybody knows why, in, in all honesty. Well, you know, uh, I think that a lot of the people who don't care for dogs have had a negative experience in some ways. Now, it could be just through sneezing and wheezing, they're allergic. Uh, but it can also be that they were bitten. There are too many dog bites, and you and I have talked about this. Uh, there's a program in Chicago. Maybe it's something you'd write about. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's called the Dog Apprehension Program, Rainbow Animal Assisted Therapy, the largest, by far, animal assisted therapy organization in Chicago has this program where trained volunteers with trained dogs go in with a very specific program with kids that are frightened of dogs. And they are generally able to reverse that fear. It's a very gradual process, and they're very careful. They work with professionals to do it. 
But to me, that's a fascinating program. Wait, that is fat. I did not. I did not know about it. What, what did you say? It's called Rainbow. Rainbow Animal Assisted Therapy Dog Apprehension Program, and I can privately send you information about that. But okay. the the point is, these young kids who were traumatized usually in some way, uh, then that fear can be reversed. Because I would argue, in some way, shape, or form that we don't understand, we are hardwired to work with dogs at some level, to be with dogs at some level, because that relationship goes back, what, 40,000 years to our evolution. Mm -hmm. We literally evolved with dogs, which is interesting, too, because you have two canines, I mean, two, uh, uh, what what are meat eaters called? Uh, carnivores. Thank carnivores. you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Two carnivores actually working yeah. with one another. And to my knowledge, and to people who know more about this than I, and the history of the planet, that symbiotic relationship with two carnivore species has never happened before either. Right. And I think what you're saying really ties into a lot of my interests in looking at the emotional lives of dogs and other animals. And I always think of... Um, emotions as being social glue and and i think you're right steve the way you say we don't really know the mechanism but it's the shared emotions between dogs and humans and and other animals as well that really bind us together which is why pet rocks and robotic dogs just you know didn't make it or don't make it um and i do think that it's it's got to be, you know, there's a hormone oxytocin that people call it the love hormone. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the popular press overplays it a bit. But, you know, it's a hormone that's important in social attraction or, you know, facilitating what we call pro-social behaviors, positive behaviors. But I think it's the empathy and the shared feelings that really bond us together. And um, I should ask Jane about this sometime because... You know, and or other people who had dogs from the time they were kids, and you know, formed these strong bonds. Not, you know, in all honesty, not knowing what was going on, other than the dog loved them and they loved the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that program you were talking about. Yeah. So anyway, we can go on, but um, I'm really glad to. I'm glad it works with kids because it's like language learning. You know, you can get kids to be bi and trilingual when they're young. But try it when they're old dudes. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm still working on my Spanish, but you know how to speak dog. The name of the book, Dogs Demystified, an A to Z guide to all things canine. Dr. Mark Beckoff is right here on WGN. We'll be right back. Dr. Mark Beckoff is the author of Dogs Demystified, an A to Z guide to all things canine. But I hope you're sitting down because I'm about to bring up the word cats. So, Uh (laughs) I know. So a study was done. A study was done, Dr. Beckoff, that indicated probably more than one study, but one that I know of that indicates that when you play with an interactive toy, like a fishing pole type toy uh, with a cat, the cat, for a lot of reasons, enjoys that play. But one thing that happens as a byproduct is they seem to associate the person at the other end of that fishing pole with something positive because they're having a good time and Mm -hmm. positive endorphins are rushing through their heads and Mm -hmm. the association helps to 
intensify the human-animal bond. I wonder, when you throw a tennis ball to the dog, if the same sort of thing happens. You know, it's a great question, but a lot of people who have been who have trained dogs um, to be rescue dogs, and I don't know about you know traditional service dogs, they find that the best reinforcement is play and throwing a tennis ball. I and I don't know any of I don't know the details of some of the studies, you know, and whether they've compared food rewards with with um you know catching a tennis ball, but sure, I mean, you know, dogs form play preferences or play partner preferences with dogs who like to play, just like you and I do. I mean, I want to hang out with friendly, playful people, not people who I feel threatened by or, you know, completely, you know, try to demean me every minute of the day. So I think it's the same with dogs. Dogs go, oh, that guy over there, you know, people call him Steve, whatever that means to the dog. He's, he's a funny guy. He likes to play. And, and I don't know if you've had this, but I've had many situations where I'll meet a dog and somebody will say, well, you know, they're kind of standoffish. Um, they're not necessarily aggressive. So don't, you know, don't have your feelings hurt if they don't like you. And I've had a dog come over and sit in my lap at my friend's house who usually avoids people. And, you know, People can make wisecracks about it, like, well, when's the last time you showered or something like that? <laughs> but, but the fact is, it gets back to what we, you know, we've talked about a lot, Steve. Dogs read us, and I would sit down. I wouldn't try to touch the dog. Um, I, if the dog brought over a, a rope, I might play tug-of-war, but I'd always stay below their eyes, and I would never make a direct movement towards them. So... I, I love that study because, you know, I love cats, but I'm allergic to probably 99.99% in the world. And I'm just going to throw this into your listeners that it's just a myth that cats are so, so solitary. They're highly social animals, but a lot of people who get them get them because they think they're solitary and they think they can just leave them alone for four days with food and water. I'm so glad you said that because you know okay. I'm a big proponent of what you just said. One other thing, by the way, if I've never talked about with this with you off the air, I'll talk about it on the air. There is a food. So when you're allergic to cats, you're not allergic to the dander or the hair. Mm-hmm. What you're allergic to is a protein, I'm sure you know, on their saliva mm-hmm. called FELD1 or FELD1. And then they mm-hmm. groom themselves and this very sticky protein sticks on Whoever, your hand, if you pet the cat, it sticks on the floor as they walk across the floor, as they shed their hair. But even so-called hairless cats, like the Sphinx cat, that truly Mm -hmm. are hairless, uh, they've got this on their body with their oils. So those oils still have this protein which sticks on things. So you're allergic to all these cats because of the protein. And there is a pet food, Purina Pro Plan Live Clear, that is the name of the food, that actually mm. neutralizes the protein, which is amazing science in of itself. And uh, I should have Purina send you some to try out because <laughs> uh, you will not be, you have to get the cat first, but you would not be allergic. <laughs> wow. Well, that's really, uh, yeah, I think you've mentioned that to me before. And I once, 
I, I once memorized the name of the food, and I and, and I, I just remember asking the people with whom I'm friendly. You know, if they have a cat, they said yes, and I mentioned the food, and you know, I don't know what they were feeding, to be honest with you. Um, but that is, that is interesting because, gosh, I um. Well, imagine. Yeah. I mean, if more people knew about this, how many more cats could be in homes like yours? How many more cats could be oh. adopted from shelters? How many fewer cats would be given up because people say they're allergic? And for the most part, I believe them, not everybody, but for the most part. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, we could save cat lives. Oh, I I definitely agree with you. I mean, I would I would love to have, I mean... I sort of lean towards the older animals for whom, you know, nobody, many people are not attracted to them, but I would love to, but I've I've always been afraid of bringing a cat home and then, you know, learning within a day or two, often it's within about a millisecond or two (laughs) that I'm allergic. But anyway, we're going to talk about dogs, but, but I like this conversation because one of the things a lot of dog people, um, you know who you know people who prefer dogs um you know be, and they say well cats are so standoffish and they're not social i tell them yeah they are the problem is is a lot of people get cats with the expectation that the cat the, you know cats aren't social and the cats could suffer from you know lack of stimulation a, la- a lack of contact if you will with their humans just like dogs do all right, we've only got a minute here. If you wanted to give okay. a message, one message to people who have a dog, what would that be? My message would be love your dog. You can't spoil your dog. Be sure that your dog agrees with you when you ask something of them. Um, it's going to be a give-and-take relationship over time, so sometimes they're going to push you to the limit, and sometimes you're going to push them to the limit. And Another message I also would give is learn as much about your dog as the individual they are as possible. And the whole basis of doing all of these things is becoming fluent in dog, you know, learning what dog behaviors mean and paying attention to different contexts. And be very careful when people say that I know how to solve this problem. They may or may they may not, but, but True no, enough. Just being, a lot of times they don't because they're not paying attention to context and the details of what's happening. Well, you can understand more when you get the book, as I'm sure you will. Dogs Demystified, an A to Z guide to all things canine. Dr. Mark Beckoff, you know how much I respect you and what a pleasure it is and how grateful I am that you're spending time on the radio here with us on WGN. Thank you, Dr. Beckoff. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate it. So we kind of understand why cats purr. And they purr for all sorts of different reasons. They seem to purr because that way they uh, contain their own emotions by purring. It's self-soothing when they purr. They also seem to purr to express affection. That part we've known about for decades and decades. They also seem to purr often when they are in pain. Ask any veterinarian, and that veterinarian will tell you when, or veterinary technician, when the cat who was hit by a car was being treated, or as I euthanize a cat, at the end of life, the cat is purring audibly. 
They can hear the cat purr. By the way, not all cat purrs are audible. Sometimes you could just feel it, and that's one end of the spectrum. You don't hear a thing, but they do purr. All domestic cats potentially can and do purr. On the other end of the spectrum, you can hear the cat next door. You think that the next door neighbor is using a lawnmower, and in fact, it's the cat purring. It's almost that loud, or it seems that loud. But now, now, a new study points out what we didn't know, and that's how cats purr. Domestic cats possess pads embedded within their vocal cords, which add an extra layer of fatty tissue that allows them to vibrate at low frequencies. Scientists just reported in a publication called Current Biology. What's more, the larynx of these animals don't appear to need any input from the brain. So it kind of happens automatically. Your cat doesn't come up to you and think, oh, I really like this person. I'm going to purr. It's kind of an automatic response. And by the way, that low frequency is very similar to what one other species does to communicate. And you'll never guess. Elephants. It's amazing. See you next week, bright and early on WGN.